Right now you can find the book of Matthew chapter 9. We will be looking at a passage tonight that talks about things like fasting. It seems like we keep talking about fasting. Have you noticed that? Maybe you've incorporated a practice of fasting into your regular Christian rhythm. Maybe you have not. But tonight, Jesus answers some questions about fasting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. So we're going to read this passage. I'm going to pray for us and give us a chance to sit and dwell with God and what he might be doing in our hearts tonight. And then we will talk about this passage after we hear these words from the Lord. Then John's disciples came and asked him, Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Let's pray together as we dive in. Father, so often we're uncomfortable with silence, even like this. We're so used to going and going and thinking and doing and checking our phones and getting our tasks done that we rarely stop and rest and listen to you. Listen to your word. Listen to the sound of silence around us and realize that Life exists even when we stop moving. We pray that you would train our hearts to be comfortable with a rhythm of life that includes working and resting, and feasting and fasting, blessing and famine and hardship and beauty, trial and vacation. pouring out and being poured into. We pray that as we develop the rhythms of life and walk through our days, that we would find a way to incorporate you and your presence and your word and your directives into everything about us. We confess that so often we show up at church on Sunday and we're kind of blindsided by the fact that you still exist and feel like we've walked out of this room a week ago and then got busy with life and now we're back and we remember you again. I pray that you would guide us, that your spirit would dwell in us as we obey you, as we marinate in your word, as we spend time with your people, as we develop spiritual practices and rhythms in our life. And we pray that you would help us to be conscious of you in every moment of every day. That we would walk by your spirit. That we would keep in step with the spirit. And as we do that, that you would transform us. Like Paul says, walk by the spirit and not satisfy. You will not satisfy the desires of the sinful flesh. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. We pray that we would. 
And that we would realize that the Christian life is not about doing things for you or showing up a place to sing to you, but Christianity is an identity that you have given us as sons and daughters of God. You've adopted us into your family because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you've made us heirs to your kingdom. Help us to live within the identity that you've so graciously and beautifully and miraculously given to us. Let's be aware of you. Let us live in the light. Let us live as children of God. Let us find joy in bringing you glory in all things. Whether we're bringing burritos to hungry folks in the darkness under an overpass, or working on our computer at work, or spending time with our kids, or going to school, or whatever we're doing, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let us do it for your glory, Lord. We pray that as we contemplate this passage tonight and examine not only the way that Jesus lived, but the way that Jesus said that we would live, that we would be convicted of areas in our lives that need to change, that we need to confess to you. We'd be energized to go out and live with you and for you and with you in us and in our community. We pray that you would give us an identity that transcends the identity that's given to us by the systems of this world. We wouldn't see ourselves as employees or Children or parents or workers or busy or connected, but we would see ourselves as sons and daughters of you, as ambassadors for your kingdom, as heirs to your kingdom, as sinners saved by grace, as those who have been made holy and who are being made holy, as those who will exist forever. Let us realize the beauty and the gravity of what you've created us to be as we walk and live and move and have our being on this planet. Be with us now as we approach you and wrestle with what the words you just spoke to us through Matthew might mean for our lives, for our community, for the way that we live and exist in the places of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that Jesus always gets in trouble? Have you noticed that yet? And Jesus, it, it blows my mind because Jesus does amazing things, right? If you've heard any of the Bible about Jesus and the things that he's done, he has done, you probably know that Jesus calms storms, that he raises people from the dead, that he heals people who are born blind or born mute, that he can find someone who has passed away and breathe life into them again. And you probably know that, and you probably know that they killed him, right? And those things should not go together. When we think about the things that Jesus did when he walked this earth, we would think that the people who were around him would recognize how amazing he was, and they would exalt him, they'd make him their king. And then they tried to, and then they changed their minds, and they killed him. Jesus is always getting into trouble. And these last three passages, we've seen that Jesus is getting a bad reputation with every type of person in the society he lives in imaginable. He goes across the lake to the land of the Gadarenes where the pagans, some of these pagan folks lived who were maybe Jewish by heritage but were living in a far place away from God. He walked onto their soil. He saw two men who were possessed and ravaged by demons. He cleans them up. He frees them from their bondage. He puts them in their right mind. He puts them back in their community. And then the community comes out and says, get out of here. 
because he killed some of their pigs while he was exercising these demons. They didn't like that, and so they kicked him out. And so Jesus goes back across the lake, and he sees a guy named Matthew, a sinner, a tax collector, a guy living on the fringe of Jewish society, and he says, come and follow me. And Matthew is so blown away that a man like Jesus would call him to follow him that he leaves everything, walks away from his tax collector booth, and follows after Jesus. He's ecstatic. He throws a party. He invites all of his sinner friends. And then Jesus comes to the party and starts engaging on this evening with these tax collectors and sinners. And the religious people get mad. So what does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't he supposed to be a godly man? keeps getting in trouble. Pagans don't like Jesus because he kills their pigs. The religious people don't like Jesus because he hangs out with bad people. And now here in Matthew 9, some of Jesus' friends, his co-workers in the gospel, come to him and they're a little bit concerned with the way that Jesus and his disciples live out their spiritual life on this planet. Matthew tells us that the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and pose him a question. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He loved Jesus. Some of Jesus' disciples, the 12 disciples, were former disciples of John the Baptist. And he didn't like steal them from John the Baptist. They were with John the Baptist one day. And John the Baptist saw Jesus and said to his disciples, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some of his disciples left him and followed Jesus because that's why they were with John the Baptist to meet the Messiah. So these were Jesus' friends. It was his cousin's people. Now, John the Baptist is in prison for his faith, and some of his disciples come to Jesus, and they see the way that Jesus is living out his spiritual life and his disciples, and they pose him a question. And we don't know if they're mad at Jesus or if they're pointing fingers or they're just inquiring, but this kind of fits the pattern of Jesus living his life and people getting mad. And so these people come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, here's the question. Why is it that we fast, John the Baptist's disciples fast, and the Pharisees, the religious Jewish leaders, they fast, but you and your disciples do not fast. Fasting in the first century was a regular part of the rhythm of the religious life. So whether you were a Pharisee and you fasted twice a week as that station in life called you to do, or you were a disciple of John the Baptist, you fasted regularly to remember God's presence, to remember your need for the Lord, to mourn with your sin, to remember you are a finite human being, to have a rhythm in your life that included humility and longing and desiring to be with God. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they had this as part of their regular religious life. And they come to Jesus and say, why don't you guys fast? You look at the Old Testament, there's fasting all over the place. Look at Jewish life, there's fasting all over the place. Why don't you do it? It would be like if we decided to start a little church, and at our church we decided we weren't going to read the Bible or something. You know, we said, hey, all the Christians talk about quiet times and praying, reading the Bible. We don't do that, right? Other churches would probably come to us and say, hey, can I ask you a question? How come every church in America and in the world loves the Bible, but you never read it? That's the question they pose. Why don't you fast? Isn't fasting supposed to be a regular part of the Christian experience? Why don't you do it, Jesus? What would you say if somebody asked you that? If they said, hey, you know what? I'm new to the whole Bible thing. I've been reading it a little bit. It talks about this fasting thing, and it seems like everyone in the Bible was doing it all the time. Do you? 
You'd be like, well, uh, I, I did, yeah, sometimes, right? You're thinking like, oh, when I was in college 30 years ago, I did it one time, right? It's not really a part of our Christian life very often. And I said, well, why don't you do it? What, what would you say? I would probably say, I don't know. <laughs> right? Fasting sucks. Fasting hurts. Fasting makes me hungry. Fasting, right? I don't know. I never, Jesus never told me to fast directly, right? And, and sometimes we can relate with Jesus because he gets in trouble all the time. And we think, well, I get in trouble all the time, you know. I'm at work, and I bring out my Bible at lunchtime, and everybody's like, you Christian, reading your Bible, you're a zealot. You're like, I just opened a Bible. I wasn't preaching or anything, right? And you go out with cross streets, and your Christian friends say, oh, look at you, you're a liberal now. You're like, I'm a liberal. I'm just feeding the homeless. Like, oh, I know what you're doing. You're like, what? Right? So religious people are mad at you. Pagan people are mad at you. You're like, oh, I'm just like Jesus there. And they say, oh, I don't fast either, so I'm just like Jesus. And yeah, the difference, I think, between Jesus, there's a lot of differences between you and Jesus. We can talk about those later. But one of the big differences in this passage between us and Jesus is when Jesus got in trouble, it was never an accident, right? Like, if you say something dumb and people get mad at you and they say, hey, you were sharing the gospel and you talked about how people like me are going to hell. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that you were doing that. I, I'm, I'm sorry, right? If you were casting out demons, maybe, and you accidentally killed a bunch of pigs in the process, you'd be like, I'm so sorry, I don't really know how to do this casting out demons thing, and I accidentally killed your pig, my bad, right? Jesus is not apologizing. Jesus is not doing anything on accident. He's doing things on purpose. He casts out demons from that man, and he kills the pigs on purpose, because you're not supposed to be raising pigs if you live in a Jewish environment. They're unclean. So he does it on purpose, and when the people kick him out, he doesn't say, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to kill your pigs. That was my mistake. I didn't mean to. He, he just leaves. And when he goes and eats with the tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees say, you're not supposed to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners, he doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I just got invited to this party. I didn't know what the guest list was like, right? He says, I'm here on purpose. <laughs> I'm here because these people are sick, and I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to be with patients. That's what I do. That's my vocation is I heal people, and these people are sick. They're sinners. They need a Savior, and that's me. So I'm here. He's not making excuses. He's doing it on purpose. And here... When John the Baptist's disciples say, why don't you fast? And why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus doesn't say, you know what? We've been so busy with all this crazy ministry stuff lately. We just didn't get the time in our schedule. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? I've been meaning to do that. Um, I forgot. <laughs> so, I forgot. It was on my, it was on my, on my day timer or what. I don't know what they had back then, right? I, I forgot. He says, well, actually, there's a reason that we don't do it. And in the reason that Jesus gives that he did not fast, he talks about us. Do you notice that? He says, not only is there a reason that me and my disciples don't fast, but he says, trust me, someday when I leave this earth, my disciples, us, will fast again. And so he gives this reason for fasting that includes the statement that we will be people who regularly fast. And so this is not just a passage that's enlightening to us about the spiritual practices of Jesus. This is a passage where Jesus says, let me tell you what my church in Castro Valley in 2015 AD will be doing. They will be fasting. And let me tell you why. And we're like, oh, oh, oh no, <laughs> we don't do that. And Jesus says that, this, this, is, this is why we don't fast. This is fascinating. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? 
In order to understand what he meant by that, it's important that we understand the rhythm that existed in the Jewish life and the rhythm that existed in religious life, even among John the Baptist's disciples, of what feasting and fasting were. There were seasons in the calendar year of feasting. There were days of the year, like uh, Rosh Hashanah, the new year, where people would feast and celebrate. There were feasts in line with the scriptures, where they would remember God's salvation acts throughout history, and they would celebrate, and they would party, they'd have a feast. They would celebrate and have a feast in in day-to-day life, too. When someone got married, they'd party. They'd have a feast. There were seasons of feasting in life as part of the calendar from the Bible and from their traditions and from their culture. And there were seasons of fasting in the religious life that came from the Bible and from their history and from their culture. From the Bible, the people would fast on the Day of Atonement. That was a, a day where they would recognize their sin and they would mourn and fast and confess to God that they were sinful people. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was a day of fasting. There were seasons of fasting after the feast days. When there would be a feast, the next two weeks on Mondays and Thursdays, they wouldn't eat any food because they wanted to remind themselves that we don't live as feasters. We have to kind of wind down again. So it's kind of like joining the gym in January after the holiday season. They would fast after feast days to say, let's ratchet it back again. Let's get back into a normal rhythm. Let's not step into fasting as a lifestyle. We need to humble ourselves and remember that we are people who fast. They would fast on days that were days of mourning, days where they remembered terrible tragedies in the history of their people. They would all choose to fast together. And so the calendar year of the Jewish people existed of days of feasting and days of fasting. And some of these were days that everyone would observe together. And some of these were practices that different groups like the disciples of John or the Pharisees would say, here are our fasting practices. Here's what we do as a community. And the major rule, if you were a faster was that you were not allowed to fast on a feast day. So if you were a person who fasted every Monday and every Thursday, and every Monday and every Thursday, every Monday morning after the sun came up, you stopped eating until the sun came down, then you ate again. And every Thursday when the sun came up, you stopped eating until the sun went down, then you started eating again. If that was your life rhythm, and Monday morning came, and it was the day of the new year, for example, It's a celebration day. It doesn't matter if your calendar says you can fast today. You can't. It's inappropriate to fast on a feast day. If you're preparing to get married, a lot of times people would choose to fast in the day or two prior to their wedding. They believed that the day of a wedding was a special day where sins were forgiven and everyone celebrated. And so coming up to that, the bride and the groom would fast and prepare because they're about to meet one another. And in that ceremony, they'd be joined together. They would eat together in the wedding ceremony and then celebrate in a party with their family and friends. And Jesus brings this imagery up and he says, let me tell you why my disciples don't fast. This is a feast day. And you guys fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week. We get it. You fast twice a week. You tithe too. You've told us about that. Great. Wonderful. The reason my disciples don't fast right now is because this is a season of celebration. This is a time where God himself is walking on earth with his people. That's a time to party. This is a time where the prisoners are released from their captivity, where the blind are given sight, where the dead are raised, where nature is being subdued, where shalom is being recreated, where the world is coming back to the way that it should be for a season, and we're excited about that. This is a season where men who are possessed by demons are being freed, where mothers-in-law who are lying in bed ill are getting up, where sinners are being reconciled, where patients are being healed, and where sinners are being made righteous. This is not a time to mourn and fast and walk around sad. This is a time to celebrate. He says, why don't we fast? 
How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while the bridegroom is with them? This is our wedding. You don't fast at a wedding. You go to a wedding and you're on a diet, drop it, right? <laughs> free food, free drinks. It's a wedding, right? You go to the, if the bride and groom come to your table and all you took is like a little piece of salad and you're drinking water and you're like, oh, I'm watching my figure. They'll be mad at you. <laughs> They'll say, I spent $49 on this plate and B... I invited you to come and celebrate with us. This is not a time for you to look sad and hungry. It's a time for you to go, yeah, and party with us. Jesus says, my disciples aren't fasting right now because I am with them. The God of the universe is dwelling with his people and miraculous things are happening. It's not time to be sad and cry. It's time to throw a party and that's what we're doing. We don't fast because we are celebrating but they'll fast again, Jesus said. So there's a day coming when the groom will be ripped away from them. On that day, they'll fast. There's a day when our party will end and the people will grab me and they'll nail me to a cross. My disciples will fast on that day. They won't even think about eating. I'll be hiding in corners, I'll be crying, I'll be watching the blood come down from my body. My mom will be tearing up and John will be sitting at the base of the cross and Peter will be out alienated from me and they're not having steak that day. They're crying in the dust that day because their husband is just murdered before their eyes. That's a fast day. This is a feast day. Jesus tells these people who come to ask him why their spiritual practices are different, why their spiritual rhythm is different than the rest of the religious people. He says, because I'm different. Something new is happening here and everything is changing. He says, this is what you need to understand. You can't just take me and put me into your old system. It just won't work. He says, imagine this. Imagine he talks about the patch that's sewn onto the shirt. He says, imagine you have a shirt and it's your favorite t-shirt and it's already all shrunken down and it fits you nice. You go to the gym and you put it on, you look great, right? Imagine that shirt and then you get a hole in it because you flex too hard and you've got this hole in your shirt and you want to patch it because it's your favorite shirt from your favorite band when you were in junior high. And so you cut out a piece of unshrunk cloth and you try to sew it on there. What's going to happen when you wash it? It's going to rip. You can't stick a new patch on an old t-shirt, he says. So if you're making wine, right, and you've got your crusty old wine bag or whatever from the last batch of wine that you made, and it's all brittle and it's old and it's already expanded and contracted again and it's been out in the sun, and now you've made this new batch of wine and you need to ferment it somewhere, if you stick it in that old crusty wine bag, it's going to crack and break and spill and ruin all your wine. If you have new wine, you have to put it in a new wine skin, he says, that has the flexibility to absorb it and work with it and envelop it properly. He says that's, that's how things work. And in the same way, Jesus says, I am stepping onto this earth and I am starting something new here. And you can't take your old spiritual practices and apply them to the new state of reality. It's just not going to work. You can't fast while the Messiah is with you. It's not going to work. You can't celebrate fat feast days that apply to the Old Testament in the New Covenant. It doesn't work. You don't mourn your sin. You don't slit the throats of animals in the New Covenant. It doesn't make sense anymore. You need new practices. This church, he says, will have new practices that reflect the new nature of the New Covenant where new wine is being poured into new wineskins. So someday when I leave, my church will fast and they will remember me 
but they're going to fast differently. It's not going to be like a pharisaical fast. It's not going to be like the fast of the disciples of John the Baptist. It's going to be different. You're going to have a spiritual rhythm, Jesus says, that reflects the nature of the covenant that I have with my people because of my death and my resurrection. If you take some time, and you don't have to do it because I did it, if you take some time and, and look at the Jewish calendar from the first century and from a few centuries before, you can see that they built a spiritual rhythm, a spiritual way of life that revolved around the world as they knew it. There were days, like I said, from the scriptures where they would fast and mourn, Yom Kippur, these other days that they would mourn the fact that they are sinners. Uh, they would remember the days they did dumb things in the Bible and say, let's fast on that day and for never forget how dumb we were back then. There would be days where bad things would happen in their society and they would mourn the old times and the bad things that happened. And there'd be days of feasting and they'd build this rhythm into their calendar where you would feast and you'd fast and you'd feast and you'd fast and you'd almost embody the theology you believed in the way that your stomach expanded and contracted in the way that you hungered for God and then celebrated God. They built that into their rhythm. After the Jews got their first temple destroyed and they built a new one, they built new spiritual practices that were in line with a Jewish culture that came out of exile and they'd remember the exile in their fasting. They'd remember the deliverance in their feasting. They'd mourn the old temple's loss in their fasting. They'd celebrate God's temple in the new with their feasting and they built these practices into their life, these rhythms that helped them to remember and embody and know the truth that they believed with their everything in their being. It would help them to love the Lord their God with all their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength because their calendar reflected the history of their people. Jesus says, when, when my people today, 2,000 years later, or after my death and resurrection, when my people gather to worship me, they'll have new spiritual rhythms. They'll have a new way of embodying the covenant that they believe. They'll have a new way to keep front of mind the things that they've been taught and the realities they've experienced They'll have new spiritual practices. They'll have a new spiritual rhythm that helps them to embody and remember God at all times, in all seasons, and in all parts of life. They'll have new days of feasting. They'll have new days of fasting. They'll have a new rhythm of life. What's your rhythm of spiritual life? Sometimes I feel that in kind of our circles, like the American, evangelical, Protestant circles, we don't really have that. We hear about the Catholics doing the Lent thing. We think, that's weird. Why would you have a season in your life where you don't eat something? That seems weird. That's an effort to bring these spiritual practices, this rhythm, into the day-to-day -day of their lives. I think, if anything, our spiritual practice is less based on the Bible and more based on, like, American calendar or something, Right? My, my lifestyle, my rhythm goes like this. In the new year, I celebrate, and then we all kind of mourn and fast and try to lose weight for a little bit, right? And then we have Easter, we have a religious holiday, and then we have summer, and we kind of transition to celebration and barbecue, and then we have this Labor Day kind of transition time, and then we move into the holiday season, right? We have Thanksgiving, and we feast, and we have Christmas, and we feast, and the feast days that we have are American holiday feast days, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, right? And, and maybe Easter a little bit. It's brunch that day. And that's, that's our feast's calendar. It's based more kind of on our American heritage than it's based on our religious heritage. And our fast rhythm 
doesn't exist, right? Americans don't fast. We eat. That's what we do. We consume. And so we are people who feast constantly, except some of us make a New Year's resolution, and then we fast for like a day or two, and then we get back to eating again, right? And our rhythm is a rhythm that's not been designated from the scriptures or designated from the history of God's people or even designated from how the scriptures and our traditions are engaging with our culture. Really, our rhythms are just kind of adopted from our culture. We have times of feasting, and we have times of feasting more, and we have times of feasting a ton more. And then we fast, and then we have times of feasting, and feasting more, and a ton more. And then we don't fast, and then we have feasting, and feasting, and feasting. And we feel fat all the time, and we look in the mirror, and we feel sad, and we feel like we're full, but we're empty, right? And, and it's because our rhythm of life is based on a system that says, you are what you eat. So eat, and you'll be great, because you're made much of when much food is in your stomach. <laughs> I think that's true. Jesus, Jesus brings in a different set of spiritual practices. What would it look like if we said, you know what? Let's like remove ourselves from that system and let's recreate a rhythm of life that's based more on our Christian identity than our American identity or based more on our spiritual heritage than our American or ethnic heritage? What if we based the rhythm of our calendar even and the rhythm of our weekly calendar on a rhythm that says, let me remember there are seasons to mourn, seasons to rejoice because of God and what he's done and because of who and who I am, me and who I am. What if I need to create rhythms to remind me that I need to stay close to God because I'm prone to wander? I think our calendar would look very different. What if we said, you know what, we're going to be like the Jewish people. We're going to fast, absolutely fast on Good Friday. That's what we're going to do. And that's going to be a day where we are starving and we're sad and we're just feeling terrible. And it's helping us to remember that our Savior was murdered on that day. And our body starts to reflect it and we feel it and we feel so terrible because it's a day of mourning and sadness and hardship because our Savior died. And what if we said, you know what, I'm going to eat just really light that whole weekend. And the first thing I'm going to eat is I'm going to celebrate on Easter Sunday. I'm going to have that brunch and I'm going to feel the food rushing into my body and remember to rejoice that the Savior lives and my body is going to reflect the theology that I believe. What if we did that? What if we said, let's spend that Lenten season from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday and let's learn how we can abstain from things and remember the sufferings of Jesus during that time? What if we walk through our calendar year and when we find places where we're far from God, we remember to insert days of fasting or days of feasting or days of prayer that are connected with what we want to remember about God and who he is? What if we feast on Christmas, not because we love presents, but we feast on Christmas because the Savior has entered the world? What if we remember that in our calendar? What if we bake our weekly calendar and we make it reflect the rhythms that we desire so that we may stay tethered to the Lord? We think of the people in the first century, they would, go, they would go and gather together as a community to prayer three times a day. 9 a.m., they'd go and they'd pray. 3 p.m., they'd go and they'd pray. They'd have evening prayers, and they would go and they'd have this rhythm where every single day they would come together and remember, we are a community of people who together believe in the Lord. That's not what we do. I'm not saying that's what we have to do. But we need to realize that our spiritual rhythms affect our spiritual reality. That if your spiritual rhythm is, I come to church on Sundays, and that's all it is, it's no wonder that all week long you're just drifting away from God because there's nothing in your life to remind you that he exists Monday through Saturday. 
whatever our life we want it to be, we need to create rhythms and practices that help to ingrain that into our mind. If you've got a small group that meets during the week, is that small group something that tethers you to the Lord and to his people? Or is it just time to get information and discuss something? If you've got a quiet time in the morning, is that a time where you soak in the word and you pray to the Lord? Or is it time just to check something off your box? How many of your spiritual practices are individual practices? How many of them are corporate practices? Is your Christian life one where it's just you and God, you and God, you and God? Maybe the reason you feel so distant is because Christianity wasn't meant to be lived that way. You need a rhythm that includes us gathering and us scattering and us gathering and us scattering. You need people around you who believe with you and for you and pray for you and talk with you about the things that you believe and the things that God is doing. A rhythm like going out to cross streets, it's not magic. You don't like become a Christian because you go out with Craig on a Friday night. What happens is you have a rhythm in your life where you're pouring out and you're praying and you're watching the gospel take root in our community and God uses that rhythm to change you. He uses that and if we could build more of those rhythms into our lives, our lives will be tethered to the Lord. Like Jesus said what happened. He says, when I leave, they're going to fast because they're going to miss me. If you don't fast, you got to ask, do you miss him? Are you longing for Jesus to come back or are you full, fat, and happy and empty and sad on the inside? We fast because we're sinners. We fast because we miss Jesus. We fast because this world is wrong and we want him to make it right. And then we feast because we're redeemed. We feast because we're forgiven. We feast because he's made us sons and daughters of his and given us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We have that rhythm in our life that reminds us of our identity because we have been transformed by the gospel, by the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Him sitting on his throne reminds us that he is in charge and the fact that this world still stinks reminds us that he hasn't come back yet and so we feast and we fast we feast and we fast we gather and we scatter and our rhythm reflects our theology and our identity whether you want it to or not your identity is going to be wrapped up in the rhythm of your spiritual practices and if you are stale and far from God it's probably because you never think about him and you have no practices that remind you about him it's not because you're like dumber than the rest of us we all forget about God We all need the rhythms that remind us that he's here and yet he's not yet here. He's with us and yet we long for him. That he's done everything and yet there's still much more left to do. We need him and we have him. It's the rhythm of Christian life. This week, take some time and develop a rhythm for you and your community. Maybe you've got some close friends who are believers. Get together with them and say, what are some rhythms and practices that that we can develop together? If you want to talk to someone about that, email Paul. He's like the man when it comes to spiritual rhythms. Not because he's amazing at it. He's just Paul. But because uh, Paul, as our pastor of worship, it is his job to shepherd us as we learn to worship the Lord together. And worship of God does not just happen on Sunday nights or Sunday mornings. Worship of God should happen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so if you need to be shepherded in your worship, we have a pastor of worship. Ask him, how do I develop these rhythms into my life? You can ask me, ask a friend, ask anybody, just do it. Because your identity and your state of being will be reflective of the rhythms that you have created and practiced for yourself. So we need to audit those rhythms and say, what do my rhythms say about who I truly am and what I truly do believe? And is it the reason that I always think about my weight and I feel fat? Is it because all I care about is the way I look and all I do is eat? Is that why? 
And the chances are if you devoted your life to having a rhythm with the Lord and feasting and fasting and reading and learning and being in community and praying and pouring out and being poured into, you're not going to be worrying about what you look like in a mirror anymore. You're going to realize that the mirror that you look into is the mirror of God's word and you see in God's word that he has transformed you, that he is beautiful, and he has made you his. What you think about who you are is reflective of how you practice the life that God has given you. Jesus says, my disciples today don't fast because I'm here, but when I'm gone, they will. They will have new wineskins that the new covenant wine flows into. And those wineskins will be the rhythms of their spiritual life, which include the fasting and the feasting and the prayers and the giving and the tithes and the offerings and the fellowship and the homeless ministry and the scripture study that we do. The centerpiece of all of those is the communion meal. If you think about it, the communion meal should not be a feast, it should be a fast. Right? This is a time that we as the church, we remember that God was murdered for us. That should be a fast day. That should be a day where we say, let's eat nothing, let's drink nothing, let's put on sackcloth and ashes and put dust on our heads and remember that we killed the author of life and yet Jesus says, this is how I want you to remember the way you killed me. Feast. Feast because you, but you eat me and have life. Feast because I'm the offering that goes into you and transforms you from the inside out. Feast because it was a bad day for me, but a great day for you. And it was sad and it was grave and it was heavy. But I changed the universe on that day. And so we feast in the communion meal. Now I know communion never feels like a feast. And 613 at least it's like a piece of pita bread and not like a little chiclet or something. But. <laughs> but what Jesus has instituted is for us to remember that we that we feast because what we consume is him. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, he said, this is my blood, the new covenant. And he passes it around and says, drink this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The communion meal should be a fast day, but Jesus has given to us as a feast day so we can remember the amazing reality that his death gives us life, that his body transforms our body, that his blood causes the blood to flow through our veins, that his death is for our eternal life. And so we feast. We proclaim the death of Jesus. We celebrate the death of Jesus. It's a time of gravity and gladness, of heaviness and celebration, a time of reflection and a time of joy. So tonight, if you are a believer, as we step into this next song, that's a chance for you to come down and feast and grab a, a piece of bread and dip it in this juice and eat of it and remember that by feasting on the Lord, he gives you life. That he is the source of life and we consume him. We need him. He is in us, the hope of glory. It's a feast. And, and yet remember in that feast, that it is a, a grave feast. That the reason that we are able to consume this is because Jesus was consumed on our behalf. That his body was given, his blood was shed and poured out for us. And so we, we eat this and we drink this in somber, beautiful joy-filled remembrance of the one who died so that we might have life. Let's pray together tonight.